John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hi, this is Steve. 2010 was an interesting year for movies, from the very British The King's Speech to The Social Network, which seems even more relevant today than it was 10 years ago. There was the beautiful Toy Story 3, which brought me to tears not once, but twice when I saw it in the theater. Plus cult classics Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, True Grit, The Fighter, Shutter Island, and a whole bunch of other interesting films. But when we asked you back in January which 2010 film you wanted us to review first on the cinephiles, it wasn't even close. The overwhelming choice was Christopher Nolan's Inception, which of course is not surprising. With its incredible special effects, brilliant action sequences, and mind-bending story, Inception is the kind of movie that gets its hooks deep into your brain and never lets go. Exploring the different levels of a film like this isn't easy, so it shouldn't surprise any of you that this one will stretch into two parts. And if you haven't seen this great film, my advice to you is to wake up and run straight to cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream Inception along with every other film we've ever reviewed. And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, right now you could be listening to an all-new cinephile short on film's greatest cinematographers. So that's cinematographers exclusively on Patreon and Inception Part 1 coming out this Friday on the Cinephiles. That's some subconscious you've got on you, Cobb. She's a real charmer. Oh, I see you met Mrs. Cobb. She's his wife? I don't know if, if you can't see what's going on or if you just don't want to, but Cobb has some serious problems that he's tried to bury down there, and I'm not about to just open my mind to someone like that. Hello and welcome. 
welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a voiceover artist, uh, writer, producer, and host here in Los Angeles, California as well. And uh, I just finished going four levels deep into a dream, and uh, I don't even know if I'm uh, actually... Uh, recording the cinephiles or right uh, or not right now let me spin my top and find I was out gonna say you have your totem you should be able to check that um uh and i think i think john is sort of giving a hint of what this movie is we are <laughs> digging in to our very first film of 2010 it is now 10 years since christopher nolan made inception and of course, this was the result of our audience poll. We sent it out. It took us a while to get to it, but we asked all of you, what was the movie from 2010 you want us to review first? And the answer was overwhelming. It wasn't even close. So Inception got 34% of the vote. The next quote closest was Social Network with 16% of the vote, yeah. half as much. And things like 100, you know, it's an interesting year. Toy Story 3, which is a great movie, yes. barely got, it only got 5% of the vote. The King's mm -hmm. Speech, which won the Oscar that year, only 6%. Mm -hmm. um, 127 hours, <laughs> paltry 1%. <laughs> no one was really interested in that. <laughs> That's also the year of uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World and True Grit and How to Train Your Dragon, Black Swan. A lot of interesting movies, but you guys wanted Christopher Nolan's Inception. Yeah. I thought it was going to be Social Network. I really did. I, I, I'm, I'm shocked that Inception is the one. I, I, it's really interesting. In my last class, you know, I always start off, you know, when you're trying to meet everybody and we go around the room and you uh, introduce yourself and say some of your background. I always try to have a question. In this last class that I started, I asked people, what's your favorite movie and why? Yeah. I think 80% of the class picked a Christopher Nolan movie. Wow. And about half the class picked Inception. Hmm. Um, and I'm going to say it right from the outset. I think this is an amazing movie. Yep. This is not one of my favorite movies. It's a, it's a, it sits yep. in a weird place for me. You know, and it's funny because last year, the audience pick for our first 2009 was Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards, yep. which is another movie that I totally admire for its craftsmanship and filmmaking. And that one I had weird kind of political, emotional feelings about. I don't have that here. But here, like, yeah, I, 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 it doesn't... It amazes me, this movie, but it's yeah. not one I go back to. In fact, I'll answer my question of how I first came to the film. I saw this uh, in the Cinerama Dome, I think, right around when it opened. It blew me away. I watched it one time between then and now, and that's it. And then I, and, but, but what I did this time, which I almost have never done, is in, I, watch, I basically watched this two and a half times because I really was trying to get my head around a really complicated movie you know it's a very it's i had to i was like i think i gotta watch it again yeah. to figure out what i really think how about you how'd you first come to it i think it was with our group of friends you know it's 2010 so we're all out here in la uh i'm pretty sure i saw it in the theater as well i don't know if i was there at cinerama dome or not but i know i saw it in the theater uh with our group of friends and i remember just being uh completely transfixed by the movie um trying to decipher it trying to figure it out um, and trying to put it together in my mind. Cause I've always had an interest in dreams and the idea of creating an alternate reality in your mind. I think a lot of human beings create alternate realities in order to exist in the world. Um, the, and I'm always, uh, um, what do you call it? I'm always fascinated by the Rashomon of our lives or the citizen Kane of our lives. And by that, I mean 
we all can look at something at the same time and get five different meanings from it or 20 different meanings from it or you know, look at it in a certain way and all of a sudden it becomes something else. And so you start to question, well, what's the truth, right? I mean, how much of our, The Matrix is another film that kind of explores that idea. What is the truth? What is our actual truth? What's the real world? You know, and the Inception, and Inception kind of explored that even deeper uh, in this movie. And so I remember just being transfixed by the movie um, but it being one of those Nolan films, and I think this is a characteristic of Nolan films, they're a bit detached emotionally. Like you can't really connect to the main characters that emotionally, that deeply, but you are in awe of the concepts uh, that are presented or the cinematography or the direction of these films, you know? And so- That's exactly, just feel- you just said exactly what I think, is yeah. that he, Christopher Nolan is one of the great conceptual directors. He has great ideas, he has great yeah. visuals, he has great techniques. And then, you know, it's, you know, the other Christopher Nolan movie we talked about is Dark Knight, yeah. which, uh, you know, again, you could say many of the same things. It looks amazing, it's incredibly well made. But if you remove Heath Ledger from that movie, it's kind of a lot of stuff that's yeah. interesting, but whether or not it's, you know, I don't think we would be talking about it at all if yeah. without Heath Ledger. A little bit of pre-production. He started thinking about this idea in 2001. <laughs> and, and, and then he, he, and he's always fascinated with dreaming, always fascinated with his dreams and really considered dreaming to be really analogous to the creative process. And that's something we're going to talk about throughout this film. And I think it's a great metaphor for what's going on in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the things he, he, he 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 said is that, which is an amazing thing, is that basically, if we all live our normal lifespan, we will have spent 20 years asleep. Yeah. And five years of that probably dreaming. Mm. That's a huge slice of your life. And he became really interested in this idea and in dreams within dreams and dreams in the mind and dreams in the creative process and dreams in the, the so-called muse. Yeah. And the first thing he wrote was an 80-page treatment for a, a horror film about dream themes. themes. Mm. That was the first one he wrote. And then and he kind of shopped it around a little. And then he decided, I am not ready to direct this movie. And so he shelved it. And he went off to make Batman Begins, to make The Prestige, and to make Dark Knight. All the while, he kept coming back and reworking the script and reworking the script. It basically was almost 10 years that he was working on this movie. And it was only after Dark Knight that he went, okay, I'm ready to do it. <laughs> That's a, that's a long time. And I think that shows a lot of maturity to say, yeah, I'm not ready to do this yet. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, oh, I'm, and now I remember the thing that you said that I was going to comment on, which is that the matrix is one of his big inspirations. Yeah. No surprise. Yeah. No surprise. Uh, like all, alternate all, reality. Yeah. yeah. Also dark city is another one. Oh yeah. I was thinking about a lot. Yeah. Um, and he apparently was a huge DiCaprio fan and he kept contacting him to work on projects. And I don't know which projects they were, and Leo kept saying no, no, no. And it wasn't until he gave him this idea of this dream movie that he went, oh, that's interesting. And from what I understand, they worked together a lot. And the, and a lot. it sounds like a lot of the character stuff for Cobb and the emotional story, which I would say is the, is the strongest emotional thing in the film, mm-hmm. um, uh, that I think came in a lot of collaboration with Leo. Well, I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it, Steve? I mean, because DiCaprio certainly conveying the philosophical parts of this movie uh, is a Herculean task already, but without an emotional center 
you don't understand why Cobb is doing any of it. If Cobb yeah. doesn't have an emotional journey to go on, then we're just seeing a guy basically uh, he's an exceptional thief, as Hans Gruber might say, but in the mind of dreams. But and then we don't, but we don't really would care about the guy if he didn't have something that he was working out emotionally throughout the movie. So absolutely, a hundred percent. And that uh, was filmed in six countries over ten months. This is a big movie, hundred and sixty million dollar budget. And one thing we'll talk about quite a bit is unlike the movement in film of big action films for the last 20 years, Nolan doesn't like CG effects. He wants as much as he can do practically, he's going to do practically. And that is definitely what he's doing here. He tries to do as much in the real world as he possibly can. Yeah, when he was able to get that city to fold over on itself, that was incredible. That was incredible. <laughs> Not easy. Not the easy. Big, big gimbal. Um, <laughs> Uh, would you like to enter the world of dreams and inception? Yeah, here we go, man. All right, let's do it. We start with that ominous Hans Zimmer music. Hans Zimmer is such a unique composer, and I love, and it's the same in Dark Knight, where you start with that tone yeah. that is for the joker it's like it's it's you know when you think of john williams or you think of so many composers you think of the melodies the light motifs the themes yeah hans zimmer is like a, t a sound you know and it's not even musical sometimes it's more just part of a sound field um and we see beautiful crashing waves and there's leonardo dicaprio waking up in the water he looks up and sees kid, two kids whose faces we don't see playing with sound castles. We see that he has a gun in the back of his pants and someone comes up with a rifle, takes the gun, calls out something in Japanese. And we look up and there's this giant pagoda kind of fortress up on the rocks. And this is something we talked about over and over again, which is all films are mysteries. This is a mysterious opening. Yeah. And we're going to spend a long time not understanding what the hell is going on. Uh, by the way, both the interior and exterior of this building are based on uh, the Nijio Castle, which was built in 1603 in Japan. Wow. Which, if you look at pictures of, it's amazing and gorgeous. Yeah. And we go into this unbelievable space, which is this Japanese uh, screens on the walls and the you know lanterns lining the ceiling. It is just incredible looking. Mm. And there is a very old man, Ken Watanabe. Yeah. Who I love. Yeah. Ditto. Yeah. Ditto. Yeah. Um, and, and it was interesting. So Nolan, you know, he, he's pretty lo loyal. He likes to work with some of the same people. And after Batman Begins, he really wanted to work with him again. And this is as different a part as you can imagine for him, you know, from Batman Begins. Are you here to kill me? And, and it seems like Leo is just completely wiped out and he's struggling just to eat a little bit. And, oh, and we see that... Uh, that what Leonardo DiCaprio was carrying was this gun, and we see the top. I know what this is. I've seen one before, many, many years ago. It belonged to a man I met in half remember a dream. And at this moment, Leo looks up. This is such a great look from Leo in this moment. Mm -hmm. The eyes are so powerful. You don't you almost you don't see any of the white in his eyes, uh, and he's almost glassy-eyed, almost not himself as mm -hmm. a human. 
Um, it's very interesting uh, the way he's framed and the way it looks here in this moment. And of course, we'll come back to it at the end of the film, but like it's so strong of an introduction for this character. Like you said, we don't know what the hell is happening. We can sense that's an actor in, you know, uh, old age makeup. But what is this deal? What's the top? What's this all about? What's the gun? What's the situation? Oh, is this a Japanese film? Like all these things come into your head and like, what is this all about? Um, so I, I want to do a thing with this. We've done this a few times, which is with particularly mysterious movies. Yeah. I mean, obviously we ruin every movie we talk about. We're going to spoil everything. There is. <laughs> yes. But in yes. particular, and we did this with Fight Club. We did this with The Matrix. We did this mm-hmm. with Chinatown is trying to go like, OK, what's really going on? Because when you get to the end, yeah. you, you can kind of look back on all these things and try to explain. And in this one, yeah. I don't know where we're going to get, you know, <laughs> in terms true. of trying to figure this out. But yeah, this is this is actually what is going on here is that we're in limbo in this deep, deep dream state. Mm-hmm. And that uh, Saito, which is the Ken Watanabe character, has been here for some huge number of years and has yeah. grown, not only has he grown old, but he has probably forgotten that he is in a dream Yeah. at one yeah. point. And this world that we're in is a world that he has completely constructed out of his mind. All these peoples are projections of his subconscious. And for the same amount of time, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, whose name is Cobb, has been searching for him in order to rescue him and bring him back to the real world because he, he promised that he would. That's his duty yeah. to save this guy. And um, one of the interesting things is, and I think this is really done just for filmmaking reasons, is that Leo is not old. No, right. He's been there the same amount of time. Right. But And we have no idea what he's been through for 50 years or 60, who knows how much time he's been through trying to get to Ken Watanabe. Right. right. Um, But now we go back, we cut to this, we're in the same room, except now uh, uh, he's young. Yeah. And he's talking about this idea of what is the most resilient parasite? Bacteria, a virus, an intestinal worm. Uh, what Mr. Cobb is trying to say. An idea. Resilient, highly contagious. Once an idea has taken hold of the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate it. What's interesting about this line is it has nothing to do with anything that's happening in the movie. <laughs> is it what it's really telling us is what Inception is. Yes. Which is, and, and it's telling, and it's also his biggest regret because the big sin of his life is to put a certain idea into his wife's mind yeah, that sticks. Yeah. And by the way, I should say one other thing about this film. Mm-hmm. We've talked a lot about exposition. And I, you know, my thing that I always say is exposition is a, the death to films. <laughs> is that the last thing you want to hear is people explain stuff. Yeah. And, you know, there's that expression, the exception that proves the rule. This movie's all exposition. Yeah. It's like wall to wall. There's a lot of explaining going on. And Christopher Nolan manages to make all of it so interesting. Mm-hmm. And right now we're explaining what extractors are, which is they're these people that can go into someone's dreams to get a secret. And that Leo seems to be auditioning for a job to protect this guy. Like, yes. I, if, if you tell me everything you know, then I can teach you how to protect yourself from someone who might Rust in your dreams right. to find something. Enjoy your evening, gentlemen. As I consider your proposal. And he goes out to what looks like a, a big party. Yeah. And there we see uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is with him, who I love in this movie. Yeah. Very good in this movie. Yeah. I, I, I honestly, I think he's pretty much always good. 
Yeah, fair point. I mean, I think that's what's so uh, um, interesting about Joseph is he's suddenly he's just one of these subtly good actors that you constantly see and stuff, and you're like, uh, why isn't he bigger than he yeah. is? But you know, he's just like you know, he does his, he does his job. Um, well, that's actually very much what his character of Arthur is. <laughs> yeah. And the first thing that we say is that he knows. Yeah. And as soon as they say it, the world starts shaking. Because the reality is, which we don't know watching the movie the first time, but we're in a dream. Yes. And as soon as we recognize that we're in a dream, then the, the world starts to come apart. Yes. Um, and we see, and then we see, again, this is all so weird. As the world starts to shake, we see a second hand. And the second hand's going slow, and then it starts going faster. And we go to this other world. Then we have no idea where we are or what's going on, where there's like riots in the streets and explosions, and Lucas Haas is there. And uh, and we see that uh, Cobb and Arthur are asleep. Yes. And there's like this riot coming right towards them down the street. And she's like, what the heck is going on here? (laughs) Back in the pagoda. Sado knows. He's playing with us. It doesn't matter. I can get it here. Trust me. The information is in the safe. He looked right at it when I mentioned secrets. And, and then we see a woman. What's she doing? It? Now, this is Mal, who is his wife. Yeah. Um, Marion uh, Cotillard. Yeah. Um, who I love in this movie. I, I think all the actors are great in this. Yes. It's a very stacked movie in terms of actors. Uh, yeah. You know, we're, we're going to meet Ellen Page in a little bit and Michael Caine. And like you said, likes to use the same people. Michael Caine, he's been in a number of films with them. So yeah, just a very stacked cast. Well, and this is this thing at this moment, mm-hmm. Arthur sees Mal. He knows yes. who she is. He knows right. this is his wife. He knows what it means that she's in Leo's subconscious. Cause this is his business. Yep. And this is where in this movie I go, I would say that this, even though we're going to analyze the crap out of it, (laughs) I don't think this movie should be analyzed that much. Oh, really? Interesting. Okay. Well, Is it going to fall apart to analysis? To some degree, yeah. Okay. Because why, if Arthur knows what he knows, why does he do anything that he does in the rest of the movie? Why does he trust Cobb at all? Because he shouldn't, you know? Sure. Um. Uh, and he goes up to, uh, Cobb goes up to talk to Mal. And the first thing she says is, if I jumped, would I survive? Hmm. Which I love because this is the, you know, again, going to the spoiling things. She died by jumping off the ledge of a building yeah. and killing herself. Yep. So the, if I jumped, did I survive is a direct reference to her death. And now they're in another room, and he he does this weird thing, which he puts her in a chair, he kneels down, he ties a rope, I think, to the bottom of the chair, yeah, and says, stay here. And then trusts that she will, for some reason. Yes. And she says, did the children miss me? Oof, yeah. And he hesitates, and he says, you can't imagine. And then he heads to the window, and basically goes out the window, rappelling down holding on to the chair that she put her in and of course when we cut back to the chair she's gone and the chair slides to the window and he drops way down right so right at the beginning metaphorically he's trusting this because what she is is a creation of his own subconscious yeah that he knows is not trustworthy and that he is trusting his life to her yeah why do you think he does that what is happening here well, I think they're doing like what you said, like uh, what we've seen, well, what we've said about multiple movies, right? You're laying the mysterious seed 
right. that will bloom into a full-grown mystery and then an, an understanding of why this was necessary for you to see. Uh, and this relationship with Mal, and once again, what we, what we talked about earlier, this idea of giving him an emotional journey. Without Mal, there is no emotional journey. Right. He needs this journey. It is a redemption story um, as well for him. Um, if you believe the ending or don't believe the ending, if it, if you think the whole thing's a dream or not, which is why you talk about uh, uh, you know this idea of uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character. If you believe the entire film is a dream, then well, that course, was the, literally the next thing I was going to say. Yep, yep. Because and of course, Jordan, Joseph Gordon-Levitt does all this stuff because you manipulate what people do in your dreams, you know. Right. And so uh, that's why he would keep doing it. Because you're right; it's never explained why. Uh, what's uh, whatever his character's name is, why he is always good at being his secondhand man all the time, no matter what, and no matter how much Mal, which we're told numerous times throughout the movie, messes up their jobs sometimes because of the guilt over her. Yeah. Well, there, there's, there's so many reasons why we shouldn't continue or why what they're doing makes very little sense. Yeah. And yet they keep going. And, and there, there's different possibilities. One is like, well, that's just their characters. Another is the thing you said, which is maybe this whole thing is a dream. Yeah. Or maybe parts of it are dreams and parts of it aren't that we don't know, yeah. you know, because there's all sorts of weird stuff that's happening here. Yep. Um, and the other possibility is that, it's a construct. It's a it's a movie, and it's you know just and, and here's the interesting thing. And I mean, I was trying to decide when I was going to say it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that Christopher Nolan says is that he models the dream after the creative process, and there's a way yes. of thinking about this where the experience of a dream is like the experience of watching a movie, you know. Yeah. And some dreams, as you analyze them, they don't make any sense. And right. some movies too. All your, and what does he say? You know, what does he say? Oh, we'll get to this later. But he says, yeah. you only realize the move, the, the dream didn't make sense once you're out of it. Yes. Inside, it always, right. it always makes sense. Yeah, the logic makes sense. So anyway, uh, he, he climbs up, goes to the window, takes a gun with a silencer. He's killing people. Again, we have no idea what's going on or why any of this is happening. He opens a safe, takes out an envelope, replaces it, and then the lights come on. And there is Mal with Saito, and they have a gun on Arthur, and they get him to put the gun down, which he does. I don't quite know why he puts the gun down. They ask for the envelope. He gives him the envelope. Did she tell you? You've known all along. And what that is about is, it's really, did I tell you? Right. Because if Mal, who is part of his subconscious, mm-hmm. went and told Saito then he actually informed the mark that he was getting conned. Yes. Yes. And we never get an answer to this. Yeah. Of how this happened. Yeah. I think, by the way, Saito knew all along. Okay. Um, and we'll get to why I think that. Um, okay. And they threaten Arthur because they want to find out who employed him to do this. And he's like, it doesn't, you know, you can't threaten him. He's in a dream. If you kill him, he'll wake up, which is one key piece of exposition that's really important. Killing him will just wake him up. But pain. Pain is in the mind. And he does a very, very cool move, jumps up, slides down the table, grabs the gun, and shoots Arthur in the head. Yeah. Have you ever died in a dream? Uh, yes. I have been chased in a dream. I've fallen off a cliff in a dream. Uh, I've been stabbed in a dream. But most of the times I wake, or, or except for maybe the, you know, a few times I wake up before it happens. Like I've been in a plane f- as a pilot, and the plane is crashing. 
and I wake up. So yeah, I've had that. I've had a pl- been in a plane that was crashing. I don't mm-hmm. remember if I was the pilot. I I almost everything you said, fallen off a cliff, stabbed. Yeah. And there was one dream in particular. It was when I was in film school and I was living in my apartment on Wilshire Boulevard, and I dreamt someone shot me in the head, <sighs> and I could feel the bullet go into my brain. Right and felt and the world went dark and I was like, oh, I'm, I died and then I woke up. And it was so wow, viscerally real that I woke up just adrenaline, wide awake, scared. It was such a, because people say like, oh, you can't die in your dream. It's like, no, I, yeah. I died. Yeah, you can die in your <laughs> um, dream. Absolutely. And the dream starts to collapse. Um, oh, and by the way, I should say that when Arthur gets shot in the head, he wakes up. Yes. Yeah. The kick. That's the kick. That's the kick. And we wake up at the next level. And they're they're trying to wake Leo up. And this is the world where we saw Lucas Hawes and that there's these rioting and explosions. And uh, Saito gets crushed by something. And he wakes up on a bed again in this world with the riot. Mm -hmm. Uh, They slap Leo in the face. That doesn't wake him up. And they say, drop him. He's in a chair and he starts to fall. And this looks so cool. Yeah, man. Slow motion fall backwards into a tub of water. It looks so cool. And at this moment in the Pagoda world, he gets engulfed in water. And the idea behind this is that, and this is all in good dream research, is that experiences you have that are happening in the real world when you're dreaming get translated in some way into your dreams, which really does happen. So if there's wind or heat or water or you know get, get rained on in the real world, your dreaming mind will make that make sense within the dream. And so yeah. he gets engulfed in water. Um, this is a huge flood. It's, it's giant uh, air cans pushing huge sprays of water that's pressurized to 150 pounds a square inch. This is serious water cans. The thing about this shot is if you don't get it right on the first shot where they have lots of cameras running, it's like a full day to redress because you got to repair the whole set. You got to dry the whole set. You got to try all the actors, new costumes, new hair, new makeup, and try to do it again. Yeah. Three to 4,000 gallons of water were used in this shot. Wow. And, and again, we'll see it throughout this movie. It's not that there aren't computer-generated effects in this. There are. Yeah. But mostly, Christopher Nolan wants to do everything he can practically. And now Leo wakes up in this riot, in the riot world and Saito looks around and he's shocked because he's like, not even my security. Nobody knows about this apartment because apparently this is like where he's having an affair um, and the riot's getting closer and they're going, no, there's one more key piece of information we need from you. You held something back because you knew what we were up to. Question is, why do you let us in at all? An audition. An audition for what? Doesn't matter. You fail. And here's my question. If he says you failed the audition, then first of all, Mal didn't tell him about the dream. Right. Good point. Because he knew that they were auditioning. Yeah. They say they got hired by someone like Cobalt Industries or something like that Mm -hmm. to do industrial espionage. Right. Did they? I don't know. That's a good question. Because accepted that they did. Because if it's an audition, well, then Saito must have set it up. With DiCaprio... Through cobalt. Through cobalt. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Convince them. And so they think that they're on the run from cobalt, which they right. say throughout the film, because yeah. they failed to do this thing with Saito. Yeah. But if Saito set the thing up, then they why would they be on the run from cobalt? Hmm. Unless cobalt was trying to steal something from Saito, so they convinced Saito to be a part of this thing, and DiCaprio didn't steal it because he was using it for his own benefits, and that's why cobalt came after him. Perhaps. 
know. Yes, yes, perhaps. Mm. And as he's saying this, we suddenly cut to like a bullet train and all these guys are asleep in a car. Yeah. <laughs> and again, you're going, what the heck is going <laughs> on in this movie? And the explosions are getting closer. The riots are getting closer. And uh, there's a young guy on the train and he takes some headphones and he puts the headphones on their heads. Uh, we get to hear some Edith Pilaf. And we hear that music thundering through the apartment. And basically he goes, you know what? I got to get this information. He throws Saito on the ground. He pulls out his gun, threatens his life. And what does Saito do as his face is smashed into this carpet? He <laughs> oh. He laughs. He laughs. I've always hated this carpet. Stained and frayed in very particular ways, but yeah. very definitely made out of wool. This <laughs> is polyester, which means I'm not lying in my apartment. Yeah. And now he finds him out. He finds yeah. him out. Yeah. But he also, now he is impressed. You have lived up to your reputation, Mr. Cobb. I'm still dreaming. I'm assuming you've had this where you were dreaming and you went, I got to wake up or you oh, woke yeah. up and then you went, Whew, I'm glad I woke up. And then at a certain point you realize you're still dreaming. Yes. Yes. Those are the worst. Yeah. yeah. And I have like uh, night terrors. Um, so those are the worst when you know you're dreaming and then you try to wake up and you can't wake up and you're just frozen. Like your body is frozen. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the worst. Cause those usually only happen like when I'm really, really tired and just pass out for a second. And I have that moment, but yeah, I mean, I've woken up from dreams that I thought I was awake and then you're like, Oh, wait a minute. And then, you know, you yeah. I, so there's, there, there is like a, a, a enzyme or something that gets released in your body that causes paralysis mm. when you're dreaming. So literally it's paralyzed your body. So if you're, if that's still in your system, yeah. And you, you know, cause I've had the thing where I've woken up and I think I was awake, but couldn't move. Right. And I've also had the, you know, just the horrible nightmare and went, okay, this is a nightmare. I got to wake up. And I forced myself to wake up. Yeah. And then, but I knew as soon as I closed my eyes again, I'm going to be right back in it. Oh and yeah. I would force myself to wake up again and then be right back in it and then force myself to wake up and then be just scared to go to sleep. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and it's so, and this is why you know, Christopher Nolan is totally right to be fascinated by this. Yes. Like, what is going on with us that all these things are happening? But in my dream, you play by my rules. Ah, oh, yes, but you see, Mr. Sato, not in your dream or in mine. And then they wake up, too. Already, they're giving you, like, so much to consume, Steve, in the first yeah. 15 minutes of the film, or ten, even 10, yeah. it's probably 10 minutes of the film. You're seeing the dream within the dream within. So they're doing exposition without necessarily explaining most as, as exposition, but giving you enough where you can be like, oh, I mean, you're either in or you're out. I'm intrigued or this is going to be one of those sci-fi, uh, you know, trippy, whippy uh, things. I'm not, I'm not down with it. So you, ha you have an idea of what you're dealing with here right off the bat. One of the interesting things in filmmaking is, I, you know, I'm a story guy. That's what I care about. I care about yeah. characters and, and what their objectives are and what the obstacles are and what kind of person they are. That's what, that's right. my stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, for most movies, that's what drives it for me, you know? Um, and when movies aren't successful frequently, I think it's because they're not really doing that stuff correctly. Right, right, right. But if you turn up the skill level in other areas of filmmaking, mm -hmm. you can compensate 
for some stuff that maybe doesn't quite make as much sense. Hmm. And Nolan's skill level is off the charts high. I mean, and so everything that's happened is so thrilling and exciting and well acted and well shot. And just like that, even though you don't really know what the hell's going on, you're just kind of pulled along by it. Yeah. Um, and, and in particular, in these long expositional scenes that we're going to get into, yeah. they're all so well done. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing they do when they wake up on the train is get pissed at Lucas Hawes because how did you mess up the carpet? <laughs> and, and then we're going to uh, book out and Cobb says, I, you know, I'm going to get off in of Kyoto because we're in a bullet train in Japan. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he says, I don't like trains. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, we're setting up something really important. Yep. Yep. Uh, it's later. We're in a hotel or something, and the first thing that Cobb does, spin the top. Yep, just to make sure. Yep. <laughs> um, and the Which top will come back a few times, actually. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and the top wavers, and it falls. Yeah. I, I, well, I had a crazy thought. Um, this is, I don't think this is in the movie at all. It's just a thought that occurred to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is that, you know, this movie is about inception, and it's about, the, and inception is the idea of planting an idea in someone's head. Yeah. What if you planted the idea in Cobb's head, that the top falls in the real world, but not in the dream. Yeah, right, exactly. But who's the one implanting the thought in his head? That's the question. Well, and that that's not true, that tops can fall in the dream right. world. And so the thing that he's using as the test is something that actually doesn't work. Well, I never, and, and look who came up with it. He says Mal came up with this idea. So right. was it Mal who's been who was really the person? Like, I mean, that's there's a I read an analysis of this where Mal is actually um, in control of this entire movie, which is a really mind-bending thing to kind of uh, watch the movie through that prism or remember the movie through that prism. So considering she's the one that told him about the totem. Uh, yep, the totem's her idea. Her. Yeah. So. Well, and, and what is one of the rules of the totem? Never let anyone else touch your totem. Yeah, right. Because then it stops working. Well, this is Mal's totem. It's not, we don't even know what his totem is. Yeah, right. We don't even know if he has a totem. He's using Mal's totem the whole time. So yep. yeah. So this is not necessarily trustworthy. Right. And now he calls his kids. When are you coming home, Dad? Well, I can't, sweetheart. I can't. Not for a while, remember? Grandma says you're never coming back. He has to talk to her. She won't talk to him. Daddy? Yeah, James? Is Mama still? And we cut to the Mal at the moment before she kills herself. James, we talked about this. Mommy's not here anymore. And then grandma makes them get off the phone and they hang up right as he's talking to her. It's a crushing scene. Yeah, agreed. How long ago did Mal die and he had to leave the country? I don't know. It's never really explained, is it? Like I, I as I was watching it this time, I was like, is it always is it almost immediately? Like, I don't know. I mean, she said she says, of course, we discovered later on. She oh, well, she had herself declared legally sane by three psychiatrists, but then sent letters saying she was afraid for her life because of Cobb and whatever. So when she passes or when she, you know, kills herself, how quickly is he back in the rhythm of things? And who is that dude with the ticket? Like, you're just like, who is this guy? Some lawyery guy or something. Yeah. yeah. But, but, but this is what, what, what his connection is. Yeah. I think that based on his performance, right. It feels like he's been gone a long time. Yes. You know, what he's showing you is he's been gone a long time. And by the way, that, all those scenes that occur in that in that room, that's the only room of the house that we're allowed to see. Mm. Everything occurs in, in that, that in that room, right? Uh, him looking at his kids, 
him taking that ticket, him leaving when he shows up later and Mal, Amal is there waiting for him, it's that place. When he shows up at the end to, say, to see his kids again, it's that place. There's no other room that is explored. So. Well, and this is the thing. His performance tells me it's been a long time, like at least months, yes. if not years. Right. The voices of the kids on the phone sound like really, really little kids. Yes. Like the age of the kids that we see in his dreams. Right. And the fact that they're going, at, still asking about mommy, means that it can't have been very long. Right. You know what I mean? Because if it had been a year, they're not still asking about mom. They know mom's right. dead. You know what or, I mean? Or if Mal wants to keep him in the dream, they're going to ask about ma'am, oh, her mommy because they want she wants him to constantly still be thinking about her. Right. Well, and this is the thing. Well, and it's like, if we, you know, it's like, if we're still in the dream, then it makes sense that the kids have not aged. Exactly. Yeah. But if we're not in a dream, then those kids should be older because it seems like it's been a long time. Exactly. You know, it's not a week or two weeks. Um, this is what I mean, but it's like, well, you know, it, it, you know, it's funny when we did Chinatown and we sort of did this process of going, yeah. okay, well, what is, why did that person actually go now that we know that this is her father and blah, 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 right. blah, blah. Right, right. When we got to the end of Chinatown, it was sort of, the answer was it's Chinatown, Jake. Yeah. It means we're never going to know. And I kind of feel like it's inception, John. <laughs> like We're going to look at this, but we're not going to get, which, which of course is the point to some degree. I mean, there's a reason that, that what he does in the final shot of the film yeah. is that we, you know, it's Chinatown. It's a dream. It's not a dream. It's a dream. It's not a dream. Yeah. Well, but what's interesting is that his ambiguity is, is the final moment a dream or not a dream? Yeah, right. I would wonder if he wants us to think what you and I are talking about, which is the whole damn thing could be a dream. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. that's a different level of ambiguity. Um, but Arthur shows up, talks about we got to go, and he asks about Mal. Hey, are you okay? Yeah, yeah I'm fine. Why? Down in the dream, Mal showing up. And this is an interesting moment. Cobb apologizes for the leg. Sorry about your leg. Won't happen again. Arthur says it's getting worse. Yeah. And Cobb says, one apology is all you're getting. <laughs> right. Well, well, and again, this goes to my point of why is Arthur with this guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't treat him well. Right. He's not safe. And Arthur is ridiculed throughout the movie. He is. Right? When the Tom Hardy character comes in, he makes fun of him. Um, Ellen Page is almost already being lined up to be Cobbs' second in command. It's Ellen Page who gets shown, who jumps in and takes that elevator over, all the way yeah. down to yeah. the basement to see what's really down there. Yeah. It's not Joseph Gordon Levitt's character. So, yeah, this, if Mal is in charge of the whole entire dream in this movie, the whole entire movie, rather then she must have had some kind of issues with Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, maybe jealous of the time that Cobb would spend with him. And so she purposely turns him into a cuckolded type of assistant to Cobb. And if it's Cobb's dream, then it makes sense that he has sort of an empty construct yeah. of Arthur as, <laughs> right. the, as this just sort of loyal guy, yeah, you know? Right. Um, and anyway, they say we're going to split up and, and he's going well, to... Well, real quick, Steve, by the way, as a film director... This is how you get away with the criticism of, well, there's not a lot of character development with Arthur. And then you go, oh, well, maybe it's a dream. It's a dream. No. <laughs> well, it's funny. I, I was going to say this at the end, but like uh, it happens so often that I'll have a student. I mean, you know, to be really clear, I teach yeah. film school. Most of the films my students make are terrible, <laughs> at least not good. And um, 
And frequently when I go like, I don't understand why this character is doing what they're doing. I don't understand what's happening in your movie. And the student will defensively say, well, it's supposed to be ambiguous. You know, and it's like, no, you, you, you have to show me skill to be, to earn ambiguity. Um, this movie shows so much skill. Yeah. You know what other movie we said? We said this, I, I said this exact same thing is when we did Akira yeah. is that, is that the ending of Akira is like, I have no idea what's happening. Yes. No idea at all. But the movie is so incredibly well made yeah. that you go with it. And that's what's happening here. It's like, well, I, I don't understand it, but man, it's amazing on the ride. 2001 as well. That ending, you're like, I have no idea what is happening. We're in this black hole. Why is this all this madness happening? And what's with the space baby? And what's why is he three stages of man? Like, what is happening? But everything has earned that moment oh that entire sequence the whole film has earned uh you going on that ride as well yeah because you know you're in the world of a genius yes. yes and by the way one of the other big influences on nolan in this film is 2001 no surprise um we're up on the roof we're getting in a helicopter and there is this was shot in tokyo by the way mm -hmm. and there is uh nash the uh, uh lucas haas character and saito and they go well he sold you out yeah, and he even offers the gun to Cobb. I'm yeah. to to kill him. Yeah, and Cobb's like, you know, I don't, I don't. That's not the way I deal with things. And so they let him go and say, well, oh, you know, Cobalt will probably get him. You know, yeah. And again, this thing of like, well, why is Cobalt really after them? You know, right. Um, and again, he says like this was the audition, and you passed past the audition, <laughs> and now he asks about Inception. Inception. There's the music hits and Arthur and he asks, is it possible? And Arthur's like, no, it's not possible. And Cobb says, yeah, it is. Yeah. And the idea of his inception is, can you plant? We know we can steal ideas out of someone's dreams, right. but can you plant an idea through someone's dreams? Well, once again, he's cuckolded by Cobb going, well, no, it is possible. Right. Yeah. Cause he seems so confident about it. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and the example that Arthur uses, like I say, don't think, think about an elephant and all you can think about is elephants, but you know, I put that idea in you for yeah. inception to work. You have to feel like it was your own idea. Right. Um, <laughs> and he basically Saito basically says, if you help me do this, I'll make it so you can get back to America to see your children. Can't fix that. No one can. Just like inception. How complex is the idea? Simply enough. He's got a big competitor. He's an old man. He's going to die. The son's going to inherit. And I need the son to break up his dad's company after he yeah. dies. Yeah. Which doesn't sound like a simple idea to me at all. <laughs> that seems like a complicated idea. Yeah. I like uh, Big Macs. That's a simple idea. Yeah. Put that in there. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. These are simple ideas. Red is my favorite color. <laughs> I have to deconstruct the corporate structure of a multinational corporation wow. into smaller parts. That seems complicated. <laughs> um, this is how George Lucas came up with the prequel. Someone put this idea in his head about trade federations and all this kind of net. If I were to do this, if, if I even could do it, I'd need a guarantee. How do I know you can deliver? You don't. But I can't. So, do you want to take a leap of faith or become an old man filled with regret, waiting to die alone? So, these lines are ones that get repeated many times in the yeah. film. Yeah. 
And I think the idea of a leap of faith is something that's super important because that is how Mal is going to kill herself. Yes. Is that that is a leap of faith because she believes that the world that she is in is not real and has to have faith in an, another world which she can't see. An old man filled with regret waiting to die. I don't think it makes that much sense for Saito to say these things right now. It only makes sense because it's things that are going to echo multiple times in the course of the film. Yeah. And he says, look, go assemble your team and choose more members more wisely, which basically means don't hire the, uh, Nash, the architect you had. <laughs> and we're on a plane and Arthur is arguing with whether or not this thing can be done. I've done it before. Would you do it to him? And he doesn't answer. Yeah. Which is our first hint of. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, we're going to Paris. Why Paris? Because we need a new architect. Right. And then we go in, and this was shot in Paris and we're at some university or something. And there we find Michael Caine, who is like some kind of professor in his room. Is it safe for you to be here? Extradition between France and the United States is a bureaucratic nightmare, you know that? I think they might find a way to make it work in your case. So what we learn from this is that, oh, he's wanted for some crime in the United States. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why Michael Caine is in Paris. Right. Because grandma is in the, our country, right. and yet somehow grandpa is a professor in Paris. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the film, when we go back to the United States, who meets him at the airport but Michael Caine? Right. Wasn't he in Paris? Exactly. I don't understand. Doesn't exactly. quite all make sense. It would in a dream. Yeah. It would in a dream. What are you doing here, Tom? I think I found a way home, but I need your help. You're here to corrupt one of my brightest and best. And he says, well, let him decide for yourself. And he's like, well, is the money big? It's like, it's not just money. Yeah. And I like this line. He says, the chance to build cathedrals, entire cities, things that never existed, things that couldn't exist in the real world. In this conception of the architect, the architect doesn't necessarily go into the dream. And that's something that comes out later, although that's not how this is going to end up working. Yeah and, yeah. and now he says, you know, design it yourself. And his response is, Mao won't let me. Yeah. And what does Michael Caine say then? Come back to reality. Yeah. Again, is this a dream? Yeah, exactly. That's the thing uh, overall. Is this the dream? You know, the whole thing. Because why is he saying that? He can't, he, him saying that in the dream is an interesting moment. If we take the movie as a dream itself, then the idea of him come back to reality, what does that mean? That character is in there for what reason? To do what exactly? And why would the character who is so uh, uh, disappointed at what Cobb has done with his powers or abilities, why would he be okay with surrendering over one of his best and brightest to the exactly. cobweb, the spider web that is Cobb? You know? I like the cobweb. Yeah, the cobweb. Oh, that's all. Oh, I didn't even think about that. I, I was like, John, that is brilliant. Oh, wow, thank <laughs> you very much. Cobweb. Yeah, I meant the whole time. I meant it the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Those kids, your grandchildren, they're waiting for their father to come back home. That's their reality. So if we're in a world where if uh, Cobb goes back to the United States, he's immediately arrested, mm -hmm. then what is Michael Caine telling him here? They're waiting for their father to come home. He can't go home. Yeah. But if this is a dream... And Mal's thing is that those aren't the real kids. The real kids are at another level of reality, and we have to die to wake up to be with the real kids. Then those kids could wait for their father to come home. Right. Because he has to leave the dream. Yes. I need an architect who's as good as I was. 
I've got somebody better. Ariadne? And we meet uh, Ellen Page. I had to look up where the name Ariadne comes from because it's such yeah. a weird name. You know who it is? Who? I didn't. It's uh, the daughter of King Minos in Greek mythology oh. that helps Theseus navigate the labyrinth <laughs> where the Minotaur is. <laughs> oh, Nolan, you cracked yeah. your little shit. I yeah. love it. That's, that's a great use of a, of a Greek myth name. Yeah. Uh, and really, she's she's acts as the proxy for the audience because she's who we're going to explain everything to. Right. And the first thing he gives her is a test. Take two minutes to design a maze that takes one minute to solve. And she's, she acts like that's a perfectly normal thing for someone to ask you as an architecture student. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but she does. It fails. Does it again? <laughs> fails. And he says, you're going to have to do better than that. And she gives kind of a, a look. And then she does it a third time with a circular maze. And he says, that's more like it. They say we only use a fraction of our brain's true potential. Now, that's when we're awake. When we're asleep, our mind can do almost anything which is this whole, we only use 10% of our brain thing, which is completely not true, but, but that's okay. Um, that's one of those things that's been said over and over again with no scientific basis at all, but just gets kind of locked into the, the consciousness, I guess. And, but he says, well, imagine you're designing a building, right? You consciously create each aspect, but sometimes it feels like it's almost creating itself, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah like I'm discovering it. Genuine inspiration, right? Now, this is about inspiration. This is about right. the creative process. And I absolutely have, have had this feeling many times mm. where just, you know, the writing is writing itself. That's when it's really, really good. Yeah. The yeah. ideas are just coming. Um, and what he says, and this is what I find really interesting. This, this conceptual stuff, I think, is kind of amazing. Yeah. In a dream, our minds continuously do that. Yeah. Because our mind is the cinematographer. Our mind does the lighting. Our mind designs the sets. Our mind creates the costumes. Things that, and it's doing it all instantaneously. Yep. Whereas if you tried to do that in the real world, like it would, t- it would take you days and days and days to d- design a few minutes of stuff. Yeah. And yet we can do that right when it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, we're sitting at this cafe in Paris, which they did shoot at a cafe in Paris. And this idea is that you could build the architecture and then bring the subject in and the subject won't realize that they didn't build the architecture. Right. And they will then fill in all the empty pieces to make it seem real. Um, Again, this idea of an audience coming into a movie theater, that they are now in your dream. And in fact, when you're in an audience in a movie theater, it is a shared dream. Mm -hmm. Just like we have shared dreams. That's what this whole movie is about, is we share a dream. How could I ever acquire enough detail to make them think that it's reality well dreams they feel real while we're in them right it's only when we wake up that we realize something was actually strange i've had many many actors nightmares or versions of actors nightmares (laughs) where you're in the play and and you don't know your lines or you didn't go to rehearsal and you're not prepared i've had those a whole bunch of them many of which are really funny one of the funniest ones i i was acting in a play in college that i had written that someone else was directing and it was right before it was going up. And I had this dream and we did the play. We did act one. Yeah. And the play was a one act. And I was like, okay, good. That went really well. And the other actor said, well, we got to get ready for act two. And I went, <laughs> there's no act two. It's a one act. And they said, no, no, we, uh, the director, he added some stuff. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? There's an audience out there. And like, don't worry, it's, it's all going to be fine. And a huge pirate ship got lowered onto the <laughs> stage. And there were all these other people. And, there was, and I was going, what's happening? <laughs> no, it was my play. 
<laughs> and all, but it seemed perfectly reasonable that I had to just muddle through the pirate second act of my play. <laughs> um, and only when I woke up did I go, that was that didn't make any sense at all. <laughs> um, by the way, also, I think that's a good metaphor for this movie because only when you get to the end, you go, wait a minute. Yeah. Well, how did this work? <laughs> um, and there's a good moment too when he says this, he gives this description. She kind of looks around. I yeah. think she starts to suspect before. And the next thing he says is, you never remember the beginning of a dream, do you? So how did we end up here? Well, we just came from the... Uh... Think about it, Ariadne. How did you get here? Where are you right now? And then she gets it. Right. And things immediately start to shake. And the world just explodes around them. And it's visually just stunning. And they're just sitting in the middle of this when the walls are shattering and paper is going everywhere and buildings are coming apart. It's totally amazing to look at and it's almost all done practically wow okay. yeah so first of all they wanted to blow stuff up and paris does not like explosions <laughs> and they said no no you can't blow anything up there and that ended up being a really good thing because they had to figure out another way to do it and they got these air cannons and they built all this stuff that looked like bricks and all this stuff but was actually yeah. really light so when you hit it with this air cannon they would all shoot out and what he really, really wanted is he wanted Ellen Page and Leonardo DiCaprio in the middle of it. So he had to make sure that it was safe. And what he decided, he's like, well, you know what? We're going to do the whole thing and I'm going to sit in the middle of it yeah. to show them that it's really safe, which they did. And then all they did in CG was they added little bits of debris, little things in the air to add detail to it. Yeah. But ba And they had a whole bunch of cameras running a whole bunch of different speed to get all the slow motion and stuff. And they really did it on the set. And it looks so cool. Wow. And then they wake up um, and we hear again, it's a lot of exposition. We hear that this started in military training so people could experience killing and being killed and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And they needed architects to design the worlds. Why don't you give us another five minutes? Five minutes? What? We were talking for like at least an hour. In a dream, your mind functions more quickly. Therefore, time seems to feel more slow. Five minutes in the real world gives you an hour in the dream. Um, it's another key little piece of information. And, uh, and then we go back to the world and she asks who the people are. And he's like, well, those are uh, projections. And he explains that she's the architect. He's the subject. So it's his dream. And so that he, those projections are coming out of his subconscious. She designs the world. He populates it. And then she asks this question, what happens when you mess with physics? And there's a rumble, and we see that city just curl up oh. over them. Yeah. That was the moment in the trailer, I remember distinctly. Literally, my note here is trailer. Yeah, the moment in the trailer that happened, I was like, eh, I'm in. I'm going to go see this movie. There's no question about it. Because as soon as that it's such a brilliant effect, and you're just like, man, what an intense. And of course, Doctor Strange used it all over the place when they did oh, it. Yeah. But it was pretty cool to see it for the first time. Uh, in this film well and this is you know nolan's a genius yeah to to even conceive of it is amazing and then to execute it so incredibly well i mean it looks so so cool well and clearly he's obsessed with time right now the idea of time time yeah. out of place time disposition uh the dis difference between time 
in one location and time in another, right? So Inception is that. Interstellar is Interstellar, that. Interstellar, yeah. Yeah, and it seems like Tenet is going to do that, that time inversion stuff they're doing in the, in the film. So all of it from the last trailer, it seems like. So all this obsession with what is the real world, what is not the real world, clearly. And Westworld, his brother wrote Westworld. Or, you know, mm. So that's also like what's real, what isn't real. So clearly they're both very obsessed with this idea of what's real and what isn't real and have not come to terms with it. Well, and still processing it through these movies. And, and don't forget about Memento. Yes, Memento from the beginning. Yes. You know, because Memento, the, and, and Memento is also a movie where essentially he has totems because he has to look at the messages yes. that he sent himself. Like he doesn't know what's real or what's going on, but he believes that the messages that he sent to himself can clue him into what's going on. Yeah. You know, and, and again, that movie, time is reversed. Yep. You know, so it's absolutely themes that he's dealing with. And it's also, these are conceptual movies. Yeah. I think that's the real thing about Nolan that's interesting is he is, he is interested in concepts. Yeah. In time, in uh, reality and in, you know, exploring morality in uh, Dark Knight. And it's the concept that leads him in to find the story rather than the story that fits into a concept. Yep. Um, anyway, so they, they get to this place where reality is folded over and they just walk right up the right angle <laughs> up the street. Um, and as they start to do this, the, the people in the dream start to stare at them. <laughs> and he explains that my subconscious is starting to notice that something's up. Yeah. And, and here's the thought that I have. This is an audience in the movie theater when the movie is bad. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. They start to turn on the eye. Yeah. They start to, do, you, do you remember when we went to see Rise and Skywalker and oh. there's the moment of the kiss and it, you just the whole audience just turned? Yeah. You know, and, and that is such a weird feeling to be like, oh, we're now opposed to this movie. Yeah. You know, we started in off mass. To, in mass. Yeah. yeah. They attack like white blood cells fighting an infection. Like they're going to attack us? No. Just you. This gets very confusing to me with what goes on later in the movie. Okay. What they're saying is that they attack the architect, the person who's making the changes, yeah. not the person whose dream it is. And yet in the worlds that we're going to go into when we go on our big heist, mm -hmm. the people whose dreams it is, which is Yusuf and Arthur and I forget who, the, I think, is it Eames whose dream it yeah. is, the next one? Yeah. They're totally getting attacked by everybody. Yes. So the, there's, and maybe it's because of, uh, uh, Robert Fisher's uh, subconscious because we have multiple subconscious going on. It gets very confusing. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we get to this bridge and she makes this bridge, which is really cool. And now someone bumps into her, gives her kind of a shoulder check. Mind telling your subconscious to take it easy? It's my subconscious. Remember, I can't control it. <laughs> and I love, then again, just beautiful conceptual design. She creates these big mirrors. She creates yeah. an infinity effect. She shatters the mirrors and there's like a crowd and he is impressed. Yeah. There's one of the other themes within this is of course is lucid dreaming. Hmm. I didn't know how this, how someone proved that lucid dreaming was possible. So there's a scientist who said, no, no, we can really do, you can do lucid dreaming. And everyone said, no, no, you can't. It's not, it's not possible. Uh, no one could, you, you might have the illusion of control. And right. so what they did was they set up a test, which is he said, I can do it. And he said, we're going to set up a code that I'm going to move my eyes left, right, left, right at a certain pattern while I'm asleep. And, and, and cause they're going to have all the monitors on them and watch. And he, they watched him go to sleep. They watched him go into REM. 
all the brainwave pattern says he's asleep, and then he moved his eyes that way wow. to prove that lucid dreaming is possible. Huh. Have you ever done it? No. What is the what is the full description of it? You realize that you are in a dream. Yes. And you take control of the dream. Like you choose to fly. Okay. Or you choose to create person or space. So you're or, actively aware that you're in a dream. So then you start to control the dream within the dream. Yes. No, I've never done that. I have okay a couple of times successfully. Mostly, have you, you have you been in a dream and re realized you're in a dream? Yes, that I've done. Yeah. Yes, usually because I've had the thought, oh, I'm in a dream. I should try to control it. And as soon as I've had that thought, I wake up. Yeah. Um, but there are a couple of times where I'm in, and I'm and I'm sure you've had this too, where you're like, okay, don't wake up. Don't, like you're in a good oh, dream. And you're like, no, 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 stay here, stay here. Yeah. And like trying to stay asleep and <laughs> you can't do it. Yeah. But I have a couple of times been able to like, I, I've gone like, Oh, I'm in a dream. I should try to fly. And I've definitely chosen to fly in a dream. Uh, but it hasn't lasted very long. <laughs> All right. And he recognizes the bridge because it's a bridge in Paris that she goes to school on. And he says, never recreate places from your memory. Always imagine new places. Why not? Because building a dream from your memory is the easiest way to lose your grasp on what's real and what is a dream. Is that what happened to you? Right as this starts to happen, who shows up? But Mal walks right up and stabs her. Oh, it's so brutal the way she walks up. The way it's framed by Nolan, it's so brutal how she just splits the crowd yeah. in this trench coat and just yeah. stabs her. No questions asked, no hesitation, nothing. And it's very, very sudden. That's Personal. some subconscious you've got on your cob. She's a real charmer. Oh, I see you met Mrs. Cobb. She's his wife. So again, Arthur knows <laughs> yeah. that this, uh, this thing is going around yeah. and that it's really dangerous. Well, I mean, yeah, exactly. And we've said that. And, and you know, he spoke about the meaning, I guess, for her name, right? For uh, mm -hmm. Ellen Page's name. Arthur is what? If you go King Arthur. King Arthur? You go a cuckold. He's cuckolded in King Arthur, right? Because... Of what Guinevere and uh, Lancelot. Why do you keep, you said cuckolded a couple times. How, what do you mean? How is he cuckolded? Not Arthur. I mean, this You keep Arthur. using that word. I don't think you know what it means. <laughs> cuckolded. <laughs> well, I mean, to me, cuckold is like, uh, you know, uh, emasculated, made fun of, uh, 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 tricked. Uh, no. Cuckold means that your wife slept with someone else. That's what I'm saying. Uh, that's what happens with Arthur. Arthur's wife slept with someone else. Right. But it's specific to that. Like, it's not just you're made fun of. It's that your spouse slept with someone else. Like Arthur, like this Arthur in this movie, he doesn't have a uh -huh. spouse or. Okay. I need to look at it because I always thought cuckolded meant you are easily deceived. It's an extension. The sleeping with somebody no. is the extension of it. I oh, sorry. Now we have to look no. it up, of course. You're right. You're right. A man whose wife deceives him by having sexual relationship with another man. So I think I think that you know because there's the expression you put horns on someone that's part yeah. of the whole I think I think it's the the result of being cuckolded is that you're made a mockery of yes so there it is yeah yeah right to make a cuckold of a husband yes to and I've always I've always connected that concept the idea of right making uh, it makes someone to be made fun of because of that situation yes so uh, we we this is where we hear about a, a totem that this is what's going to tell you if you're in someone else's dream. It's interesting. He says someone else's dream. He doesn't say your own dream. Um, yes, true. And she warns him about Cobb. I, I don't know if if you can't see what's going on, or if you just don't want to. 
But Tom has some serious problems that he's tried to bury down there, and I'm not about to just open my mind to someone like that. I don't think Ariadne's uh, actions make much sense in this whole film. <laughs> Here we go again. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, if it's a dream, then they wouldn't, would it? They well, just right. gotta go where it's, it's going. Yeah, if it's a dream, then it's fine. If right. it's not a dream, it's like she knows Cobb is a real problem. Yeah, and yet she continues. She continues to say, "You should tell all the, the people," <laughs> but she doesn't tell them. No. And and she doesn't. Uh, and she just keeps going into his dream worlds, even though it could mean horrible, horrible consequences. Well, I love the cockiness of the fact that when she comes out of it, he says, uh, "She'll be back." Yeah, uh, she was too curious. She'll be back. You know. So, yeah. yeah. And the next thing we say is we, that we need Eames. Right. And we're going to go to Mombasa, even though that's in Cobalt's backyard, which is yeah. the company that we're theoretically running from. Um, and we end up in Mombasa, which was shot, by the way, in uh, Tangier, in Morocco. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is also where those opening riots were shot. Same right. same city. Right. Uh, and there we find Tom Hardy, who's always good. <laughs> yes, he is. And his character is so funny with a sort of wry sense of humor. Yeah. Inception. Now, before you... Bother telling me it's impossible. It no, it's perfectly possible. It's just bloody difficult. So Arthur keeps telling me it can't be done. <laughs> Arthur. You're still working with that stick in the mind. <laughs> right. Which is interesting because, because by the way, Arthur is a badass. Yeah. True. In fact, Eames is a badass. Yeah. But, but you know who's the least badass in this movie? Who? Cobb. Have you done it before? We tried it. Uh, we got the idea in place but it didn't take. You didn't plant it deep enough? No, it's not just about depth. You, know, you need the simplest version of the idea in order for it to grow naturally in your subject's mind. And it's a very subtle art. It has to be a simplest version of the idea. We have to go with something basic, and this is where they come with the idea. It has to be about the relationship with the father. Do you have a chemist? No, not yet. Right. Okay, well, there's a man here. You, sir. Why don't you take me there? Once you've lost your tail. Cobalt engineering. That price on my head, was that dead or alive? I don't remember. But again, I go, why is Cobalt after him if Saito set this up for an audition? Also, how does he not know he has a tail on him that's just sitting right there at the bar in plain view, right? Cobb is not that great. (laughs) Right. What does Cobb do in this movie where you go, man, this guy's awesome. He he, he continually makes poor choices. Yeah. And everyone continues to let him be the leader. And I'm like, you know, we'd be a lot, you know how we'd be a lot better off? No Cobb. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, Eames runs interference. He jumps out the window, and then we get just a really, really well constructed uh, action sequence. Yeah. And here, but here's my thought about it. So, so I think there was something that came up when we were doing Seven Samurai, mm-hmm. which is that Akira Kurosawa's goal with that film was to make an entertainment that was about something. Yeah. That it was really that it was a great action movie. That it did ha- it was thrilling and exciting and all the ways that you want from an entertainment, but it also had depth. And I think Nolan is very much trying to do this. I think he's trying to do it in Dark Knight. I think he's trying to do it in a lot of films. And I think this scene reminds me of the Hong Kong scene in Dark Knight. Yeah, in the sense that it is a really, really well made action sequence. Yes, where I don't really care that much. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Because you're not invested in the you're not you're not on the edge of your seat, wondering if Cobb's going to get away. Right? You're just kind of like, okay, let's see what happens here. Well, and and the bad guys who are chasing him, I literally have no idea who they are, and they right. never come back in the movie. 
Like right. the, it's complete. You could, you know, and that's why that Hong Kong sequence in Dark Knight again, it's really well made. Yeah, but you could almost entirely cut it out of the film, and you wouldn't know the difference. Right, right. Good point. And we it's, never know who Cobalt is. We never know who nope. the leader of Cobalt is. Nothing. I looked up Cobalt because um, I thought, well, maybe there's something here. And apparently it's an interesting thing because maybe this is part of it, but it was once referred to as the divine color by Vincent van Gogh. Right. Uh, And many people, they're saying, do you have this in your notes? I'm sorry, Steve. No, 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 I don't. He's saying, uh, it says uh, in some of the number of places I looked up that uh, a lot of people can't differentiate differentiate between cobalt and regular blue. Mm. So they don't know which one is actual blue. And the person who can differentiate is supposed to be uh, apparently uh, truly appreciative of the difference of the shade of the color um, and have a sixth sense, sees patterns, is intuitive, hmm. and makes connections between hmm. things. So it's kind of a maybe subtle thing for people to consider as a, as a, as a you know. That's actually really interesting because cause here's my thing. It's like Saito mm-hmm. wanted to audition Cobb. Yes. Cobalt hires Cobb to go find this thing from Saito, which is really part of his audition. Yeah. Okay. Then he, he's being tailed here. He tells Eames, wait for me right here. I'm going to come right. back. Cause that's the last place they expect. We have this big action sequence. Yeah. Uh, one of, by the way, one of the really cool ones is him going through the narrow hallway, that gets, okay. <laughs> the, the alley that he can barely fit through. So, I mean, like, it's all well constructed and well done. And then who kind of saves him at the end, but Saito, yeah. who's also selling him totally out, out of, of nowhere. nowhere. Yeah. Well, if Saito owns Cobalt, this makes more sense. Right. You know, yeah, um, it's a possibility. Yeah. I and he's, this could be another part of the audition, Yeah. you know, another test. Right. And they pick up Eames, and now we're back with Arthur and who returns but Ariadne because, of course, she can't get mm-hmm. enough of this. And right. he says, well, I'm going to have to teach you about paradoxical architecture. And we go on to the Escher stairs, which are called the Penrose Steps. Mm-hmm. Um, and they literally had to create, in the real world, the optical illusion of, of that Escher creates, which is a step that goes infinitely up, to, up on itself. Yeah. Um, and... The st- as they go, the stairs lift up, and he says, it's a paradox. Paradox. So a closed loop like that will help you disguise the boundaries of the dream you create. But how big do these levels have to be? Well, it can be anything from the floor of a building to an entire city. But they have to be complicated enough that we can hide from the projections. A maze. Right, a maze. And the better the maze... Then the longer we have before the projections catch us. What I like about this, and again, these, he's playing with really interesting concepts. Yes. Is one of the things that optical illusions do is they teach you, they teach us that our perceptions of the world is not the world. Yeah. That the world is actually different. And th- there's all sorts of stuff is like what we think we see when we're looking around, that is a construct that your mind has put together based on its sensory inputs. It's mm-hmm. not actually what the world looks like. Right. You know, like one example of that is that the visual spectrum that we see, we think that's the most important uh, things in light. But in fact, it represents only a tiny, tiny amount of the visuals of, of the spectrum, of the total electromagnetic spectrum. Yeah. There's all this stuff that is not what we see. And when we get hit with optical illusions, that's showing us literally the seams in our own perceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the fact is that you're, we are constructing the world. Like we learn, learning how to see you know, because like our, our eyes see things in slices. 
Yeah. Different neurons. And are, we assemble them. Like I'm sure you've had the experience where you see something in the distance and you go, oh, there's a beautiful woman or something. And then as that person comes closer, you go, no, oh, that's a fat old man. You know, because what your Ooh, eyes are, because yeah, I'm sure, and with this happens all yeah. the time that, or, or you look up at, at the, out the window at night and you say, oh my God, there's someone outside. Yeah. And then you look again and you go, no, no, it's a tree. Right. Because what our mind, what our brains do is they take the input and then they try to construct a pattern that fits it and they associate it with something. And then that is what we see. Mm-hmm. So what we see is what our brain with this sort of multiprocessor error corrector trying to figure out what it is. We're not seeing what we're seeing, what our brain constructs. Right. And again, this is what Nolan is talking about in these dreams. Cobb can't build anymore, can he? I don't know if he can't, but he won't. He thinks it's safer if he doesn't know the layouts. Why? He won't tell me. I think it's Mal. His ex-wife? No, not his ex. They're still together? No. She's dead. Now we're off with the uh, chemist, which is Yusuf. This is uh, Dilip Rao. He's great in the film, too. Yeah. Um, And he's sort of a funky underworld sort of almost like a drug dealer kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, And we start talking about the fact that if you're going to go really deep, uh, you're going to need sedatives. And and Yusuf says, oh, you're going to go two levels deep. A dream within a dream. He goes, no, three. Three. He's like, well, then you need a really powerful sedative. And he asks about how many team members. And that's when Saito says, I want to go with you. There's no room for tourists on a job like this, Mr. Saito. This time, it seems days. I don't understand why Saito wants to go with him. Well, why is Saito even there? It's great questions. Right? I mean, like, he showed up out of the blue tailing them. And is is this still the test? Is that why Saito wants to go with them? Is he, is he still part of the test? Because look, if you're Saito and you're the head of this company, why the hell are you putting yourself in these situations where you could like die and no, it's, lose it's, the company? And it, it makes no sense. I mean, and again, it doesn't, it, it, if they developed a character where Saito was like uh, Ariadne and says, mm. I, your world fascinates me and I just want to do more of this dream world. It's amazing. Yeah. But nothing like that ever happens. He wants to go with him because that's what is necessary for the movie. Yeah. Um, we see that Yusuf is running this thing where there's a whole bunch of people, 12 people, unconscious, shared dreaming. And what we find out is that they do this every day and that they can't actually dream in the real world without this experience that this becomes like an addiction that kills your ability to dream. And they ask, well, what are they here for? They, so they come here every day to dream and they say, no, they come to be woken up. The dream has become the reality. Who are you to say otherwise? Who are you to say otherwise? Uh, this is the moment that the film hooked me. And I remember the first time I saw it. And then it hooks me every time in this scene. Because that's the fascination of dreams, right? And mm-hmm. uh, Upgrade, if, if for people who've seen Upgrade, there's a, a version of this in Upgrade as well. This idea of what would you choose to actually live in? Would you choose to live in a dream world? Matrix, very clearly as well. Uh, right, Joe Pantaleano basically says, I, you know, I want to take, I know I'm not supposed to be tasting the steak, but I don't care anymore. I want to go back. And so, once you start to destroy the wall between reality and dreams, then you can actually exist in a dream that you can control and build a world in and live out the rest of your life in at your choice and be happy in. 
how many people wouldn't right do that? And it's funny when you juxtapose that with the Matrix when uh, what yes. Smith says the same thing. He says, "Well, we tried to build the Matrix the first time, and humans rejected it because it was too they were too happy, and humans were naturally suspicious of it." So, what's the truth? You know. Well, and and Joey Pants says. I don't want to remember about the matrix. I yeah. want to go back and I just want to have be rich and have women and have everything I want. Right. And who wouldn't, I mean, like, yeah. I mean, if you didn't know it was a dream then, and it was better, why wouldn't you have it? Yeah. And there's also the, I think it's, um, Zhuangzi, uh, the, the whole, the story, the old Zen story of mm. the man who dreamt he was a butterfly mm. and then he woke up and didn't know if he was awake and had dreamt of a butterfly or if he was a butterfly now dreaming that he was a man. Seth Brendel, I'm a, <laughs> am I a fly that dreamed he was a man or, a, 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 you know? Exactly. <laughs> um, well, and this is, you know, he is playing with these ideas. Yeah. Um, definitely. And now we're going to try it out. So he puts Cobb to sleep. We see Mal. We see a train track that's rumbling. You know how to find me. You know what you have to do. And he wakes up. And he goes to the bathroom. He splashes water on his face. He's obviously had a weird emotional reaction. He pulls out that top to spin it. And just as he spins it, the in comes Saito. Yeah. And again, I, I kept thinking about Memento because it's like, I have to check my reality. Mm -hmm. I have to check what's really going on. I Well, and it's funny. I knew someone, a close friend of the family who had Alzheimer's. And what I learned about Alzheimer's is that what you will do when your brain starts to fail is you will come up with systems to make it look like your brain is not failing, mm. you know, so that you always have the newspaper next to you to, so you can look down and, and know that it's Wednesday. Wow. You don't know that it's Wednesday, but you create a system beca because, well, and I, it totally makes sense. You know, I watched, you know, it wasn't Alzheimer's, but I watched when my dad was sick, that he did all these things so that he could still do the things he wanted to do, even though his body was failing. Mm -hmm. And, and you, this is true of people with schizophrenia and other mental health problems, yeah. is they know things are going wrong, but they're trying to, you know, you think about a beautiful mind, yeah. where there's all this stuff happening, and he knows enough to keep it a secret, but it doesn't mean it's not happening, you know? And now we get the rundown on the mark. And by the way, I think another inspiration for this film mm. is Mission Impossible. Yeah. More the TV show, I would say, than the movies of like, we assemble the team. Each person has their specialty. We have a mark. We're going to do this really, really complicated con, essentially, to get the mark to do a certain thing. Mm -hmm. You know? And this is, this is very much that kind of film. Robert Fisher. Yeah, to the Fisher Mauro Energy Conglomerate. What's your problem with this, Mr. Fisher? That's not your concern. Mr. Saito, this, this isn't your typical corporate espionage. You, you asked me for inception. I do hope you understand the, the gravity of that request. Now, the seed that we plant in this man's mind will grow into an idea. This idea will define him. And the, the big thing is Saito says, which we just all take him at his word, that this company is so powerful that it's going to control, it's going to be like an energy superpower and it's yeah. going to be evil and it's going to basically be awful. And, although it's also Saito's competitor. So there's like, they don't really spend a lot of time <laughs> trying to decide whether or not this is a good thing that they're going to go do. Right. But we say we're going to do it. 
And we need to learn more about the relationship with dad. We think that's going to be the strongest thing. And the person to learn about it from is this guy Browning, who is the right-hand man of dad, who's sort of based on Rupert Murdoch, by the way. And we cut to Eames in a suit, and there is Browning, Tom (laughs) Berenger, who I'm not sure if it comes out before or after Inception, but we did another Tom Berenger movie very recently. Yes, we did. And he looks completely different. Mm-hmm. I had totally forgotten that he's in this film. <laughs> There's some discussion about litigation. And he goes, well, I'm going to go ask Maurice. And apparently this office is right next to the bedroom where Maurice. And this is where I go, this almost seems like a dream. Like yeah. this situation seems really weird. Yeah. Um, and Browning goes in to talk to Maurice. And there is Robert, the son, the guy who is the Mark looking out the window. Yeah. Um, and this is uh, Celine Murphy, right. who is... Again, great. Yeah, I yeah. I wish he he. There was a moment where it seemed like he was going to be a big star. Yeah. And well, it, I mean, if you don't want, I mean, Peaky Blinders is pretty much resuscitated his career. It's an mm. incredible show. Uh, when you I watch watched the show, it. yeah, I mean, you got to try the first season out, Steve. See how you feel about it. It's it's phenomenal. I pushed through all five, and just it's great work. And he is a very powerful mob boss in the movie who comes up mm. from you know from a small to become a big time guy. Uh, and uh, it's fun to watch his journey, and you get to enjoy Killian Murphy as an actor all over again. So, yeah, I would and, absolutely recommend it. And, of course, he was in Batman Begins, and yes. he's such a great look, and he's so interesting on film. And we also see Dad, who is a very sick Pete Postlewaite, who yeah. – it's such a small part for him. It seems like kind of a waste. Well, I don't know where this is in his, like, when's the town? Because the town is like the la- almost the last thing he does because of his cancer. So I wonder if this was part of like, well, let's put you in the yeah, town 2000. So he died like, you know, I don't know, maybe a, a year or two after this. Mm. So maybe this is the most he could do. Mm. And uh, since he was sick already or becoming sick, maybe they felt, okay, this is you know, this works over. Yeah. He died the next year, 2011. So maybe this is mm. the most they could get out of him. And so why not cast him and get him some insurance sure. or whatever? I guess know. maybe. Yeah. And, and he's angry and he knocks something down and uh, Robert goes and picks him up and we see it's a photo of him, you know, as a kid with his yeah. dad. It must be a cherished memory of his. I put it beside his bed. He hasn't even noticed. So obviously there's a lot of tension here. And now Eames is back. He says, okay, I studied him. I can get him. I can impersonate him. And then again, it's more exposition. I'll impersonate (laughs) him on the first level. When we take him a level deeper, his own projection of Browning should, should feed that right back to him. So he gives himself the idea. And this solves the problem that Arthur brought up before. Don't think of an elephant. Now you're thinking of an elephant, but you know I gave you the idea. You have to think that you gave yourself the idea. And in this sense, it's the projection that he creates is going to give himself the idea. Yeah. I like the little bit of, 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 you know, conflict between Eames and Arthur. Eames, I am impressed. Your condescension, as always, is much appreciated, Arthur. Thank you. <laughs> and we see that uh, uh, Ariadne has made a, a chess piece, a, bush, mm-hmm. a bishop. That's going to be her totem. And this is where we find out that the whole totem idea was Mal's idea. Yeah. yeah. What's really, we see Ariadne do almost nothing in this film. She's just there. We hear that she has built the buildings. We don't, you know, designed all the stuff. We don't see her design very much, except at this moment. Right. We see a well, little she becomes, bit. She becomes more active as the film increases, right? As the film goes along, she becomes 
the person who forces uh, Cobb to face this idea of Mal. She's the one that exposes it uh, when she goes down there and sees what's down there. He tells her uh, everything that actually happened. Uh, and she's the one that instigates him going deeper once things start to fall apart at the snow base uh, to jump to dive even deeper to go get Saito. So, in essence, she is at she is in the introduction here, not doing much. But I think as it goes along, she becomes the impetus for everything to make sure it happens. While they basically sideline uh, Arthur pretty much to sitting in that hotel room. You know, he doesn't do much else after they get to that hotel room. There's not much else that Arthur does, but making sure, you know, people are wrapped up in cords and pushed in the elevators of the kick does. He he does a lot of stuff. I mean, he's fighting people in the spinning hallways and sure, but he's not involved up in zero gravity and elevator thing. Right. He's not involved in the final action stuff. Of course not. I I, kind of disagree because uh, about Ariadne, because the, at the final moment, we should go deep. That's totally her plan. She's yeah. 100% active. Yeah. All the other stuff, she's talking to Cobb about things, mm-hmm. but she doesn't make anything happen. She's our eyes and ears into the movie. Though. That's what she is. Yes. She, we, are see, we wouldn't know anything about what the hell's going on with Cobb and Mao right. if she weren't going to observe it. But in terms of the mission, in terms of what we're doing, she's a passenger. Right, and she Almost should be all of it. She should be because she just got out of that school. She's not even she's not even graduated from that school, so she has no concept of this whole thing. Why would she have such a predominantly active part of it if she's not that experienced at all? She's a rookie. Well, so, it, which also we're yeah. going to get to. But why does Arthur and Eames just say, "Sure, she can come along"? Yeah, that's a good point. Because <laughs> because the plan was that she wasn't going to come along. Right. And if you are the Mission Impossible team who's so good at this, you don't really want two rookies, Saito, yeah, and true. on your trip. That seems like a weird thing. And not just Saito, also the chemist. The chemist is not usually someone who goes along, just monitors. Yeah. But the chemist goes along, at least to one level of the dreams. Yeah. You can't build because if you know the maze, then she knows it. Well, she'd sabotage the whole operation. Cobb, do the others know? No, they don't. You've got to warn them if this is getting worse. No one said it's getting worse. I need to get home. That's all I care about right now. Why can't you go home? Because they think I killed her. Thank you. For what? For not asking whether I did. Again, I'd like, what loyalty does Ariadne have that she isn't going to Arthur and Eames and saying, hey, guys, (laughs) some weird stuff going on with the boss. Uh, and now we're back to the plan, and we're talking about how we're going to get into split up the empire. And the idea is that the subconscious is motivated by emotion, not reason. And so we're going to have to translate the business strategy into the emotion. And the first thought is, well, maybe it's screw you to the old man because he hates his dad. And Cobb says, no, no, we need positive emotions. We need reconciliation and catharsis. Yeah. And they come up with the idea of not following in dad's footsteps. Not my work. Might. We need to do a little better than might. Thank you for your contribution, Arthur. Forgive me for wanting a little specificity, Ames. And they argue about how many variables are tolerable. And this makes total sense, except Arthur accepts all sorts of other stuff mm-hmm. later on that's just like, okay, you were angry about that that might work in this moment, but you're not angry about Ariadne coming along or the fact that Mal is everywhere in Cobb's subconscious yeah. who's stabbing people. 
<laughs> this seems like a problem. And we also talk about the time signature, which is that it's going to be one week at level one, six months at level two, and it could be 10 years at level three. Right. Although we never spend that much time. So I'm not sure what those were referring to. And they go, well, how are we going to do this? And we need a lot of time alone. Is he doing surgery or anything like that? And they go, no, he flies back and forth from Sydney to LA regularly. It's a long flight. That's going to work. And they go, but wait, you know, he probably flies in a private plane. It's like, well, we'll make sure his plane's broken. It's like, well, yeah. if it's on a commercial flight, it's got to be in a 747 because we need the space. Right. And they said, we're going to have to buy out the whole first class cabin and buy out the flight attendant. And Saito says, I bought the airline. It's in Nita. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is funny. And then it's late and Ariadne sees Cobb and he's hooked up to the machine and he's dreaming. So Cobb is like those guys in Mombasa who can't dream. Right, right. Or he's chasing Mal. You know, it's his way of reconnecting with her, going back into a dream, spending time with her there because he can't let it go. I think it's both. I think, I think both of those things are true. Mm. And so what does she do? She goes, well, I'm going to jump into his dream, which is a yeah. bold move. Mm -hmm. um, and a weird sort of violation. Yes, of course. It of some, yeah, yeah, huge, huge violation. And she ends up in an elevator going down and she goes past the room with sort of the doll's house, which is something we're going to see later on in the film. There is a house with Cobb and Mal. You know what you have to do. And she talks about this story that she told when he asked her to marry him, which is that they would grow old together. Yeah. And then she sees Ariadne. And there is a music sting that is really shocking. You shouldn't be here. And gets into the elevator with her. And she's like, look, you asked me to share dreams. Not these. These are my dreams. Why do you do this to yourself? It's the only way I can still dream. So he is one of the people, like, from Mobasa. My dreams were still together. These aren't just dreams. These are memories, and you said never to use memories. So again, yeah. and we're going to have a moment later where Arthur says, yeah. you know, you notice that Cobb doesn't actually, you know, does all the things he says not to do. It's yeah. like, why are we with Cobb? He does not seem like a safe person. And she asks about, you know, obviously these floors in this elevator are different memories, and she asks about the basement button, and she starts to reach for it, and he stops her. Listen, there's only one thing you need to understand about me. And we're in the house, and there is the two kids who are outside, and we can't see their faces. It's my son, James. He's digging for something, maybe a worm. That's Philippa. You see, I thought about calling out to them, so they'd turn and smile, and I could see those, those beautiful faces of theirs, but it's all too late. And it's a really interestingly constructed scene because he is both describing to Ariadne his feelings, yeah. but also experiencing it. And there's the guy with the suit that you mentioned who's got a plane ticket. I realize I'm going to regret this moment that I, I need to see their faces one last time. But the moment's passed. And the kids just go off screen just as he's about to call to them. And at this moment, Ariadne runs away yeah. and goes into the elevator and hits that basement button. Mm -hmm. You know, when I'm in the dream of a person I've decided is really messed up <laughs> and they tell me, don't go to the basement. Right. <laughs> I don't go to the basement. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. seems like a poor 
plan. And as she goes down, by the way, one of the things on one of the floors is a huge freight train going by. Right. So this is a, another train reference. And she ends up at this destroyed hotel room. She steps on a broken champagne glass that leaves this very recognizable high-pitched sound that sort of resonates through the room. And Mal is there, and she is shocked to see her. What are you doing here? I know who you are. What are you doing here? And she, it's just very dangerous the way she gets up. Yeah. And there's this dissonant Hans Zimmer music. I'm trying to understand. How could you understand? Do you know what it is to be a lover? To be half of a whole? That's a great line. It's so strong. And, you know, that's why the casting of her is so perfect. And again, mm -hmm. using her again, because he will use her, I think, in Dark Knight Rises. Mm -hmm. um, uh, her accent and the way she delivers these lines, uh, they immediately feel like the words of a woman of experience mm -hmm. and life. You know, so when she's coming in Ariadne, she's saying that to her, like straight up, like, how can you understand if you've never experienced this you know, you never experienced like total and complete devotion to someone. What can you possibly understand? You know, and this idea of to be half of a whole. Yeah, well, she is literally part of this guy's subconscious. Yeah, like, true. It, like, like the she is more a part of Cobb mm -hmm. than the actual Mal was a part of Cobb. Right. Um, assuming that this is not the actual Mal and this is her dream, not Cobb's dream, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> and she says, "I'll tell you a riddle. You're waiting for a train." a train that will take you far away. You know where you hope this train will take you, but you don't know for sure. But that doesn't matter. How can it not matter to you where that train will take you? Because we'll be together. And Mal picks up some broken glass and she charges at them. You promised! You promised! Please, I need you to stay here just for now. You said we'd be together! You said we'd grow all together! I'll come back to you. Promise. It is really scary. And the elevator goes up and the shot looking down at Mal as the <sighs> elevator goes up is really cool. Those big eyes of uh, anger. Yeah. Well, and talk about a visual representation of the subconscious demons that you're mm. burying in your literal mental basement. Yeah. I mean, this is, you can't get any clearer than this. <laughs> and they wake up and this is this thing that Ariadne does throughout the whole movie is continually question him about his choices and explain why they're not safe yeah. and yet never do anything about any of this. Right. She says, Do you think you can just build a prison of memories to lock her in? Do you really think that that's going to contain her? It's time. Because dad, Maurice Fisher, has died. Yeah. And Ariadne says, Cobb, I'm coming with you. I promise, Miles. The team needs someone who understands what you're struggling with. And, and it doesn't have to be me. But then you have to show Arthur what I just saw. And his response is, get us another seat on the plane. And I'm going, why don't you tell Arthur? <laughs> and Saito and Eames. <laughs> Like this seems like, yeah, <laughs> he seems doesn't, like, this seems like pertinent information. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is not a like small thing they're going to do. Like apparently, you know, uh, insanity and trapped forever in a crazy limbo is a possibility right. in all this thing, not to mention a bunch of pain and the future of the world based on what Saito says that there could be this huge, you know, superpower that's mm -hmm. going to mess everything up. Like it seems to me 
<laughs> you should say something. Yeah, absolutely. And, and well, and the thing too is again, as you said, like she's a rookie. Like, what the hell is she gonna do? How is her going with them to the world where Cobb's subconscious is totally dangerous mm-hmm. gonna help? Yeah, yeah. You know, absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't make sense to me, but nope. it is also a perfect place to end part one of this episode of the Cinephiles because we are about to go on the mission. We've done tons of exposition to get here. Yep. We've seen incredible visuals. Our minds have already been messed with in major, <laughs> major ways. And it's only gonna get weirder. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you got anything that, that you want to add before we jump off? Uh, no, this is, uh, I'm enjoying the hell out of this. This is a fun exploration. And uh, I was hoping we'd have a lot of interesting theories as we went along. And uh, we're certainly discovering that as well. And so thank you to the fans for, uh, you know, kind of making this happen for us. Because it's a movie that I fear talking about sometimes because just like the movie, it's the characters in the movie itself, you can get lost in a theory thread and yeah. uh, go levels deep and, and not know how to get back out. So, yeah. Pretty incredible stuff. Yeah. And so, of course, we want to hear about your theories about Inception. Maybe you think this is all something that ha- is happening as a dream in your mind. If so, <laughs> visit us on your on our Facebook page. Do a search for The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, YouTube, uh, Spotify. You can visit Anchor. Uh, .fm, which is where the, the show is hosted. You can uh, buy or stream Inception along with every other movie we've ever reviewed on our website, cinephiles.net. You can support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. You can uh, follow the show on Twitter at cine underscore files on Instagram and the cinephiles podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at SR Morris on Instagram at SR Morris one. John, how about you? You can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. And of course my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says, come get involved uh, there as well. I've got my own Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash John Roca with a bunch of shows that are coming uh, and Twitch, the outlaw nation, all lowercase uh, go and follow me there. A lot of stuff coming down for the Twitch uh, channel as well. And I'm going to take a major sedative so I can go deep, deep, deep into my dreams and hopefully in the next week figure out what is the meaning of Inception.